ladies and gentlemen, transmitting direct from Lion's Den Studios in Los Angeles, California, Crew S Studios and Danube Productions bring you The Conduit, bringing together motivated artists to share their experience and to pull back the curtain for a first-hand look at a life in the arts. Today our guest is music producer, engineer, record collector, and selector, Mario Caldado Jr. So adjust your antenna, relax, and tune in. The program is about to begin. All right, welcome everybody to episode 12 of The Conduit, a podcast where I sit down and talk to amazing, courageous people about making a living in the arts. Today my guest is Mario Caldado Jr., famed music producer of the Beastie Boys, Young MC, Mellow Man Ace, Tone Loke, and many more. After success via a long list of delicious vinyl hit singles and the Beastie's triumvirate of Paul's Boutique, Check Your Head, and Ill Communication, Mario continued working with one of his longest time friends and musical allies, keyboard money Mark Nishida as well as producing everyone from Los Lobos, John Lee Hooker, Sly and Robbie, and Jack Johnson, to a heavy roster of Brazilian artists like Sao Jorge, Babel Gilberto, Marcelo Ditu, and Planet Hemp. Mario never rests on his laurels and is constantly lending his unique touch to artist after artist. In addition, Mario's love of vinyl records is never ending. Every time I see this guy DJing around town, he has only the best in Brazilian and Jamaican records leaving me with a want list as long as his production credits. So ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, sit back, relax, and have a listen to my conversation with the one and only Mario C. Mario Caldado Jr. Great to see you, man, and welcome uh, to the podcast. Thank you. Thank Thanks you so much for, for doing this, man, and taking the time. Appreciate uh, you also reaching out and uh, wanting to rap a bit. Yeah, man, I'm excited to rap. I've been following you forever, and uh, you're always so cool every time I see you around town, and I'm glad to get to sit down and kind of pick your brain about stuff today and let our all of our people listen in and hopefully gain some good insight from you. Right on. Well, so often, you know, musical people are surrounded by music growing up. So many people I know are like that, and I know you were born in Sao Paulo and came here when you were two, and I just wanted to know... Uh, what like your family members were listening to growing up. I know you had piano lessons early on and then got a Sears organ after a while. But what was music? What music was on in the house when you were little? Yeah, good question. Um, definitely, I was surrounded by uh, American music that was on on the radios, basically a AM radio at the time. This would be the early to mid 60s. Um, came to the U.S. in 63, so, you know, just hearing uh, the car radios and the neighbors outside with their little portable radios, and some people had some some home, home setups, you know, mainly inside the house, so you listen to records, though, but occasionally somebody would be listening to, to like, a little radio, transistor radio, or, or out in a shop in a garage. Um, it was that was actually a really special time to be alive and around, especially in LA, uh, mid sixties, uh, KHJ was my big station here in 93, uh, AM pumping out everything, you know, Beatles and stones to the animals to, you know, 
everything else, soul, Motown, and and uh, even some international music. You know, you'd have a, like a like a French song or, or or some Italian song, whatever. Like just that that was popping, and like Sergio Mendes, Brazil '66, that kind of stuff would be uh, all in one place and one station. So you got you got a good diversity of of popular hits, top forty. You know. Um, so I think that was that. That's the main thing I was I was exposed to, you know, growing up. And my folks, they weren't big music, you know, heads or collectors or anything like that. They came from the era of big bands, and they they liked big bands, you know, uh, in Brazil doing you know dancing ballroom and and then obviously getting into the Brazilian choros and you know sambas and then. A little bit of the bossa nova but they were already here when the bossa nova thing was was happening so right. my dad is actually italian so <laughs> he has oh, okay. a whole different uh background and, and the music you know um have you heard that record it's like ennio morricone uh the brazilian record but morricone did the arrangements for it yes chico bark he redid a version yeah, chico of bark, exactly. chico bark a beautiful beautiful reversion yeah uh killer Oh, man, that's a crazy cool record, right? Yeah, a lot of uh, Brazilians have Italian uh, blood, and they would go to Italy, and they would tour there, and they would have some success. And obviously, you know, uh, some of that influence came back, and they would grabbed onto it. And but um, yeah. yeah, just a lot of cool music, and in my neighborhood too, I guess is also a big uh, melting pot. You know, I lived in Southwest. Where'd you first move to when you got here? Well, when we first arrived, we arrived downtown. My dad knew one okay. person, an Italian guy, uh, who got him a gig, you know, driving and stuff around town. And, and you know, he worked a couple of years hustling downtown and working at steel mills and driving and fixing stuff. He's a mechanic, so he could work anywhere. Oh, There's yeah. cars and trucks, mechanics. Right. And uh, eventually we moved towards the airport to some apartments. Uh, yeah. That was a big step up. And that was for just a couple years, uh, a, you know, a year and a half or two. And then eventually we got a house when I was five, I guess, because I was in kindergarten. So actually, mm-hmm. yes, it was a short period, like two and a half. Yeah, two and a half, two and a half years or something like that. So it was probably a year downtown, a year there. And then by the time I was five, we moved into a house in southwest Los Angeles, like yeah. 121st Street and danker oh yeah <laughs> like it's okay. got a you know a little bit on the edge of the hood there and just uh it was a real transitional area there at the time in the 60s it was you know a mixed neighborhood and then then the watts riots happened and then then it changed a lot right uh right a lot a lot of the the white white folks around left the area the the asians mm-hmm. stayed and the latinos stayed and there was more right. more blacks moving in you know yeah. Um, housing and prices, I guess, had gone down, you know, and it kind of just yeah. just opened up a different uh, vibe in the neighborhood, and that to me was great because I I got exposed to just more more music intensely, you know. Uh, my yeah. neighbors listening to soul, you know, like Motown, and like you know uh, Marvin Gaye, and Al, I heard a lot of Al Green. It's just like just. Oh, yeah go to my friend's house and their folks are their mom and dad are listening to Al Green and 
very white, nice. log very white, and <laughs> Perfect. cruising around right. in the caddies and you know, continental suicide doors and like it was it was a it was an upper upper lower class I guess you know you kind of had a mix of of different styles and things and, and it, to me it, it was great. So yeah. I, I got exposed to a lot of a lot of cool good stuff there. Also having an AM radio next to my bedside with a little timer on it that when I would go to sleep, you you kick on like 30 minutes or something like that. And I'd be listening to <laughs> nice. KHJ or whatever it was and yeah. go to sleep listening to the animals or whatever, or Eric Burden and Wars spill the wine, you know, or like Papa yeah, was yeah. a Rolling Stones as I'm drifting off to sleep. And like those, those songs, you know, David Bowie, Space ID. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Paul McCartney. Become part of your DNA. In, yeah. And just hearing that going to sleep, and you know, it's like the last thing in your mind is like, <laughs> spill the wine, take that girl. Yeah. And just like, <laughs> and then I'd wake up in the morning, go to school. My mom drives us to school, and we had, you know, the old station where I went to AM radio, and it always stayed on that station. And you, then I'd hear it spill oh, yeah. the wine again, you know, or just those, those songs that were in rotation, they really locked in. And that was a, a beautiful oh, time. Yeah like mid 60s to late 60s to early 70s golden yeah so yeah did it kind of expand when you got to uh, junior high school like where you were meeting lots of new kids obviously and what kind of music came in then that was different from what you were hearing on the radio anything anything particular most definitely uh when i i, I switched up a couple schools from private school to, to public school and then back to private yeah. school and then back to public school. <laughs> it's, like, it's like every time I go to public school, you know, things changed. And uh, actually, when I was in a, in a, a Catholic school, there was a uh, an annual fair uh, like that they have, uh, you know, a, a fair where they come and bring a Ferris wheel and, and a set up a stage. Oh, yeah. And then like whoever had talent, you can go up and dance or play accordion or, you know, oh, yeah. play a piano or something like that. And, and our, and there was a couple of kids there that had a little a band, a rock band. And uh, okay. they had like three or four guitar players, bass and drums, but they, they didn't have keys. Okay. And, okay, you know, they were in the, we were in the playground. Somebody was talking about the, the band and they were like, yeah, I wish we had a keyboard or organ or something. And I said, I got an organ. It's like, <laughs> you're right. in the band. <laughs> so I got, nice. I got recruited. They didn't even ask if I could play. Right. But, you know, um, <laughs> I asked my dad if he could help, you know, if I could bring the organ down to my friend's house to rehearse. And it was a big deal, but we had a station wagon, chucked it in there Perfect. and he gave me the go ahead and brought it to my friend's house. He lived across the street from the school and we rehearsed a little bit and uh, we played this little fair, you know, the, the, the annual carnival. Yeah. And it was first time being on a stage and we we're playing, taking care of business and, you know, Backman turnover <laughs> nice. drive, that kind of stuff. Uh, right. Whatever. Right. Just pop, top pop songs that were happening at the radio at the time. And, and, um, yeah. had a blast. That, 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 that planted the seed of, of music, uh, giving you a lot of gratitude, you know, like, uh, you know, you got satisfaction from, from being playing and making noise and being part of a group. And, and then, you know, yeah, from man. there, we just built the band and just kept going. And, kind of got yeah. fell into the music like that and seeing how it all fits together and works together yeah yeah That's and then obviously getting in 
to like by then it would be like 74 75 so we were hitting the, the rock the classic rock stuff all the yeah you know aerosmith fog hats bad company free uh Love it. all that that yeah. kind of cool stuff that that was happening and kiss you know coming yeah. up yeah. and uh sabbath purple zeppelin mm. all, all that that i you know i we really dove into that plus the pop top 40 thing was still you know uh yeah still around what's that's the sears silvertone organ it's like a compact organ like a farfisa or something well kind of not that doesn't really have the sound of farfisa it's more like it has like the violin cello uh oh, okay kind of a, a couple presets very basic oh, there's yeah. like eight of them a oboe or maybe flute yeah. or something like that but it's just okay. just a real cheesy simple you know home organ it had a tube amp gotcha. in it and um yeah it was just a gas oh, i don't yeah. know why my dad bought that for me when i was like four or five and pretty young and uh, and it was just something to do i didn't you know do it sears was fun to hang out with as a kid because they always had a popcorn machine in there they had everything that was the best place <laughs> that was like totally. going to the mall because you had all the different departments <laughs> You know, yeah. the clothing that my dad had the tool department, you know, and then yeah. there's the entertainment department and there's the records department. They had everything. It was really for a kid, you know. Yeah. Like uh, it's crazy. We have like twin dads. My dad was a big band guy, too, and worked on cars for everybody, too. We always had a different car in our driveway. So he was always fixing something. Indeed. That's the same at my house. It's always in the garage <laughs> hanging out. Amazing, amazing people. Yeah. Standing on the shoulders of giants, as they say, right? Indeed. Yeah. My dad even took me to, and I believe my mom too, together to go see Duke Ellington, which was, was unbelievable. That, that, that was also a very big uh, experience for me. I remember being so happy and never seen a performance like this where like, I don't know how many encores he did. It, it felt like he did at least three or four every time he go off. People were just on their feet, just clapping and, you know, shouting, shouting for him to come back one more time, one more time. And he just kept coming wow, back. And that awesome. was just that was yeah. thrilling you know, to, to be wow. a kid and, and to see him. You know, this is like just before he passed, you know. Um, wow. 1972 or something. Where was like that? that? Do you remember where this? El Camino College. Oh, okay. El Camino College. Yeah. yeah. In the auditorium. It was spectacular and, and it, it really uh, yeah i couldn't have couldn't have asked asked for a better you know first concert you know uh, with my folks to go see and um yeah man. experience something like that incredible well oh, you're talking about all the music that was coming out back then and especially in the late 60s early 70s there was so much music that combined Great grooves, great songwriting, but also messages from Sly and the Family Stone to War to James Brown, I'm Black and I'm Proud. All these great music paired with a message was coming out. Mm -hmm. I'm, I can imagine that that had an impact on you. And I'm wondering if you can just talk about from a production standpoint or just as far as the power music can have, how did that affect you, all that music coming out at that point? And how have you carried it into what you do? Well, at, at the time, I probably didn't analyze it in that in that way as much, like lyrically and, and technically, and, and, and those yeah. kinds of things. But I knew that it uh, 
it, it was something that you felt, you know, uh, music is just soulful and spiritual. So, uh, I yeah. mean, you know, we, we, you know, you move around to it, you dance, people sing along to it and, and, and that, that gets you locked in. And we were really locked into, to that, 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 that movement that, uh, playing and performing and doing that kind of stuff. And, and eventually when I started recording and stuff and, and listening to music on headphones, that you know those those were moments that changed my listening you know like first time listening to you know like hendrix on headphones was it was it was a a a haunting but very enlightening moment you know just like you know feeling like not just a one dimension but like a two-dimensional at the time it felt like three uh (laughs) especially in the state of mind i was in it was really (laughs) a special experience that 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 planted some kind of seed in there and I was like wow you know uh the music is powerful and that there's there's a lot to it and it, then you can focus on the lyrics a lot a lot more you got the phones on and you know yeah. and, and and hearing the messages and things and uh really really it was impressive and it was something I dug into and started becoming more you know digging deeper into the music and I had older friends that I lived with and they were music heads and they had a record collection and I started diving oh, in, yeah. checking out the stuff and they were quite eclectic. And, um, you know, yeah. one of the guys was more of a jazz head. He was listening to, you know, Bud Powell, you know, and, and Keith Jarrett and, you know, right. that kind of stuff and weather report and, and all, you know, oh, yeah. uh, and then the other guy was more like the rock and Jethro Tull and, kind of Zeppelin and, and then Bob Marley, you know, it's like, these are these uh-huh. other, these worlds that were just mind blowing, you know, uh, to discover. Cause you know, not all of that played on the radio. They did maybe on like jazz station and stuff, but it's kind of a little bit yeah. trickier to find. And the records really impacted me, you know, like yeah. actually listening to a record and sitting there, you got your full attention, listening to the records, putting on the headphones or whatever, listening to it on the speakers and absorbing it, you know, uh, having a drink or a smoke and just, just really relaxing and, and getting into the experience. And, and that was something I really, I grasped onto and spent a lot of time doing. And then eventually immersive, it's like stepping into a painting or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So wow. those songs, those songs still to this day, they touch me and they still are, 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 are amazing that they were, you know, they were like messages, of, you know, like, the news of the day and they're still all a lot of them so relevant and so accurate because life life really really is the same the basics are, the, are really the same the central issues and things still continue to, to, yeah. to be there and, and we have to do, deal with them and you know absolutely man well i'm interested in you had so much experience playing in bands playing keyboards in the bands like you were talking about in junior high and high school what um do you remember if there was like a, sp- a specific moment where you kind of started veering more towards how everything comes together, the production side of things versus the playing side of things? Yeah, I'd say, I've, first of all, I wasn't a, a, a very good player, musician. So I didn't sit around and practice a lot. I was okay. caught in between two worlds because my dad was really uh into racing cars and motorcycles and his dream was for me to be a racer so i got spoiled i had these motorcycles and go-karts and mini bikes and 
So I'd, <laughs> nice. I'd be caught in between this this world, but my heart was in the music side. But, you know, I did have fun and enjoyed the motorcycles. And and yeah. um, so I, did, I didn't really, you know, spend a lot of time doing a homework on, on, the, on the music practicing side, shall we say. I but see, I was yeah. more interested in the technical side. And as being the yeah. keyboard player, I kind of got to sit down and then the PA would be next to me and I would have to maybe overlook the PA and adjust the sounds. Uh, we actually yeah. built our own light show. So if they had a wow. light rig and I'd, I'd control the lights also, you know, because oh, I was really? sitting down Well, the guitar player and the bass players and the drummer couldn't do it, you know. Yeah. So I kind of had these multitask jobs and, and I also had the car, the bandmobile to drive everybody. Uh-huh. So kind of like the manager kind of vibe showing up and picking up people and organizing equipment, right. packing it in and, and that, that kind of stuff. So <laughs> it was an all in kind of a thing. And, and, and I enjoyed doing all of that. And, um, yeah. I, I did, I did have a job and I, I made some money and then instead of carrying the organ around, I, I went and bought an electric piano and a synthesizer. Okay. Now synthesizers in these seventies, when they first came out were pretty expensive and kind of rare. Not a lot of people had them. So, yeah. Um, I, w- I was fascinated by it. I went to a store. I mean, I, we're listening to Emerson, Lake and Palmer and all these other, you know, progressive things that were coming out. And like, sure. wow, the keyboard yeah. player really got, you know, like some cool stuff. And, you know, synthesizers, they use synthesizers. You know, I, I kept hearing that more than yeah. piano and organ, which I kind of did both. You know, I took lessons yeah. and I played a little. But the synthesizer really, that caught my ear and, and the, the fact that I can make sounds and sound effects you know i would do sirens and wind and thunder and and just right. explosions and and just low-end rumbles and just weird things i i yeah. was attracted to that i started getting more into that and less into the playing and then there was mm-hmm. a point in our band where we are re- we recruited another guy in the band keyboard money mark mark nishida yeah. uh yeah. who was a local guy and and experienced keyboard player who who really he knew how to play keyboards he had a fender Rhodes, and he came in yeah. the band and i would kind of do the the other stuff a bit and then you know he took over the keyboards and i was happy just doing the other stuff and then yeah. he was also very talented and writing songs his own songs original songs and he yeah. had a four track reel to reel um this this was this was big he uh, he would have to set it up in his living room, record some stuff, and then tear it down every day because he didn't have a lot of room. Okay, yeah. I I had just moved out of my my house, living alone, and I lived in a back house, and I had two yeah. rooms: my bedroom and then the front room. So my front room, I had some junk, you know, some keyboards, equipment, amplifiers, and thing. And he said, "Hey, can I bring my setup over on my four track and set it up?" And I was like, "Sure, yeah, why not? Yeah, it's like that'd be great." And Next thing you know, he's he's teaching me how to run the four track and watching the, the you know the meters and adjusting the levels yeah. and how to little a mixer and put a little yeah. EQ, a little panning, a little reverb, and then mixing it down to oh, cassette man. or whatever we had, and that was that was our in you know like he got me into this and uh, um, he That's he crazy. figured it out on his own you know. He's a smart he guy. Just, he didn't have. He didn't go. Did he go to the library or anything? How did Mark learn to do all this stuff? His, his dad's a, an electrical engineer, and there you they, go. he was just like 
fits in with electronics all the time in the garage and fixing radios and TVs and right. amplifiers and keys. And, and he, he figured out the recording thing that somehow you record on one track and then, then you could sync it on the next track and then you lay, you know, a little drum box or whatever. He, he figured that out and then he shared it with, with me and my friends. We were all amazed at him. He That's was cool. like wonder, wonder guy, like always inventing and making stuff, and like amazing, man. making songs, yeah. recording songs and yeah. creating stuff. So he, he was a, a huge, a huge influence on getting me into this new world of recording, yeah. you know, and then, then we built the studio together. He had the equipment, yeah. then I bought a four track and then we had two four tracks. We could bounce back and forth and mix from one to the other, you know, doing the Beatles kind of thing. And, slowly yeah. slowly building our arsenal each week buying effects you know phaser and echo or uh you know a condenser mic showed up one day and like whoa uh, the recording started sounding you know crispier and just just all kinds of stuff happening and yeah he he really uh got me into that days you know out scouring the pawn shops or where were you guys finding gear back then wherever you could you know back then you had wherever. friends like hey i'm not playing bass anymore i got an amp or a guitar <laughs> Uh, man, I, yeah. you know, I, I, I don't need this anymore. I'm selling it. Swap meets, pawn shops, you name it. Yeah. Uh, just yeah. driving on the street, garage sales, see a drum kit, 50 bucks, hundred bucks. You just, right. you, you just nab, we nab stuff you know, within our reach and, um, just, yeah. you know, use our resources at the time and, um, slowly built a little arsenal and, and created music. He wrote music. Yeah. So I recorded his, 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 his stuff. And helped, and occasionally he would, he would, uh, eventually wanted to make a little band to perform the stuff live, and that's yeah. where he recruited his brother on drums, Mike Nishida, yeah, and yeah. myself on bass. I had been listening to a lot of reggae and got into bass, and he kind of like, here, this is probably the easiest thing here. You could just follow follow me on these lines and do this. Yeah. And um, a good friend of ours, Bill Spitzer, on guitar. And this other girl, Monica Page, also played a bit. And Mark did the keyboards and sang. And he also oh, played yeah. guitar. He would write songs on guitar and also play guitar. He, he taught himself. Okay. He, bu he bought a guitar. In two weeks, he was writing <laughs> songs. Like, wow. Like, wow. You know. Mark never ceases to amaze me, man. He's amazing. Amazing guy. Indeed. Well, I think there's two important lessons in all we've been talking about. One is surround yourself by like-minded people, you know, that are interested in the same stuff you're interested in because you're going to learn from each other, move forward. True. And the other is if you're interested in something and you're scouring around garage sales and stuff and you know what you're looking for and know what you want to do, stuff just kind of comes to you. And that's, uh, yeah. I think everybody I know who owns a studio or is interested in music, as soon as you start building it, it's going to happen. You know, stuff's going to start kind of coming your way. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think the group you were talking about that you guys first recorded was that Jungle Bugs group, which I just listened to. I'd never heard that before. And it's so cool. I was, I was just amazed at the balance and, you know, the sonics you guys had. It was so cool. And it was amazing how in 1984 you guys were already into, like, just the bass was perfect. Like all the, the registers were just perfect. It laid out really nicely and it was a good listening experience. And I was wondering what you guys were listening to when you were recording that stuff. Anything in particular you were aiming for? Well, yes, that's a good question. Um, definitely we were inspired by the early 80s, uh, like the two-tone movement. 
we were listening yeah. to a lot of the, like the specials and whatever the English beat. Mark was a big fan mm -hmm. of Elvis Costello and Nick Lowe. Uh, oh, yeah. Then we also listened to some, you know, psychedelic stuff that was, was happening in the 80s, early psychedelic, you know, what the three o'clock or those, whatever kind of lo little local psychedelic scene XTC stuff too. that was XTC or uh, The Clash. You know, the, all of those kinds of things that were happening, you know, um, a little Devo, you know, just, just a variety of stuff. I was more into the reggae and stuff and then, uh, you know, like the the madness and the, you know, the two tones and, and the, yeah. uh, that kind of stuff. Um, so that kind of all melted into this, the sounds that we were doing the jungle bugs. So there's a little bit of, yeah. you know, ska psychedelic reggae, you know, fusion, you know? Uh, yeah. And actually I have to mention Brian Foxworthy, uh, who was a, a good friend at the time who, um, was an engineer at the uh, community college and had access to a 16 track yeah. studio that okay. Mark was going to Harvard college and, and introduced me to him and uh, found out that he had access to recording on a 16 track. He, <laughs> he managed to have keys to the building on the weekend. He, his friend worked there or something. So he would go, could go wow. in and would use the studio I would charge like nice. 20 bucks an hour to record bands, local bands. Oh, okay. He would set nice. it up, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and do this kind of on the side. And I had decided that I wanted to produce a 45 of our projects because yeah. we had done a bunch of recordings, yeah. me and Mark, on the four track. But yeah. we, we thought, you know, that four track was kind of limited. We, it would be nice to do it on a 16 track. So this was the opportunity. So I volunteered to pay for it and hire Brian as the engineer. Yeah. And he obviously knew more than us. We were like home recording guys. He was like, he knew what a compressor was. I'd never seen a compressor, you know, on, yeah. they had like a, you know, professional, some EQs and some outboard stuff and a bunch of condenser mics. You know, we had one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, it was a great learning experience. And he was the one who helped me balance and understand the stuff and trying to trying to limit and compress stuff and make the mixes and and um i took the tapes and went and got them you know looked in the phone book to <laughs> figure out how to master it you know you got to cut an acetate and then you got to take it to the yeah. plating then you got to take it to the get labels made and then take it to the pressing place and put it all together right. and it, right. it was a, it was a manual big process no no yeah. youtube you know uh, to figure it out or <laughs> right. manuals you, you get the phone book you know yeah and i heard something about yeah. mastering and call these people up and you ask them what it is and how much it costs yeah. and just do it and then he goes then you got to go to this yeah. place here then you got to go to that place and it was really uh an adventure and, and, a, and a project uh that i i, I was very proud to, to, to be able to do and you know we made like 100 copies or 50 copies and just didn't yeah. sell them. I just gave them to our friends and family. And it was, it was a, a, a very exciting moment you know, to be able to make our own music and impress our friends and family yeah. with this, with this music that we created and, you know, trying to, trying awesome. to make something out of it and played around, got some gigs, yeah. did a few gigs in Hollywood, played some, a lot of house parties, Palos Verdes, Torrance, 
you know, like empty swimming pools, just, just some wild stuff. We, we had good times. Learned a, learned a ton of stuff. Yeah, indeed. So what I'm interested in, in those recordings, like it seems like your attention to EQing each instrument was like already kind of on point. Like you were really listening for, I know it's an early recording, but it seemed like just the tonality of the bass and the drums had their own sonic space. Like, were you already thinking about that in terms of the spectrum of sound and making sure everything had its own place at that point? Definitely. That That's, you know, you identify like the bass and the, those instruments and make sure that they were heard in the mix. And right. um, you try to just balance it to the best of your ability with what, whatever tools you had, you know. Yeah. Um, and in that case, we were in a, a professional studio built by Westlake. Uh, yeah. so audiotronics board with a 3M two-inch 16-track machine. The time, you know, there were 24 tracks, but there was, you know, the 16 was still that was an incredible quality, and and um, just just used our ear. We used our, you know, what we were feeling. You know, like, hey, this needs to sound like this, and kind of like just balancing it. You know, Mark, yeah. obviously being a, a very good reference, he, you know, he he started doing this first, so he he would always uh you know uh, be responsible also for for making it sound the way it, it sounded so we we yeah. were in this together um so it was a, it was just a great learning experience and like i said brian was the more experienced guy he'd been doing this for a couple of years he was like a second engineer at the school yeah i ended up going to the school yeah. the next year and taking the course so that i can have access and learn more about the equipment i was i was really interested in it and i did um further my education oh yeah in recording i took electronic music you know uh composition and a couple other things you know i was interested in that's so cool well you used to go to this club called power tools that was there at the park plaza hotel uh across from macarthur park and uh, any given night you'd see people like um Mike Ross and uh, Matt Dyke DJ in there, spinning all kinds of music, African, Brazilian, soul, funk, blah, 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 and uh, kind of editing it together seamlessly. And I wonder what kind of impact that had on you as a producer and then as well as a DJ, how uh, people react. Well, yeah, mo most definitely, you know, being in a club and and seeing, you know, uh, and hearing the music and, and, and uh, checking their, their their the reaction of, of the of the dance floor or the or the vibe of the of the the place is is uh is really 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 cool and and and, and fun to see how 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 it can transform and 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 mix from one thing to another and to make it all work and and like matt was really an expert uh at that at keep keeping it going he he, he never cleared the dance floor he, he just always he knew what to do. It's like, oh no, some, we need something different here, and then he'd switch it up. And he was he was really really good at that. And I, I I mean I learned a lot just watching and all the other DJs that went through there. There was Mike Messick, there was Matt Robinson, Mike Ross actually sometimes, uh, uh, mm -hmm. a handful of other DJs also. I'm not remember everyone's name, but that 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 rolled through mm -hmm. there, and it was really amazing to see. You know, like keeping four or 500 or 800 to a thousand people moving and grooving for four or five, yeah. six hours, you know, that's, that's, right. that's, that's a, that's a task, you know? And, uh, 
it was just exciting to be there and, and part of that. And and those the those you know, I guess that did shape my musical, uh, my my influences and careers later and in, in, in working with stuff and being able to work on projects. Let's say like 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 the Beastie Boys, like Check Your Head. Let's I'll take for example is, is where I've, I'm, yeah. I have my first co-production, and being able to have freedom to work with the artists and throw in ideas and different styles and genres and make it cohesive enough to work as kind of like like right. a mixtape vibe or, or a dance floor you know like you're at the club or something you know it's like from going yeah. from a rap song to a punk song to a funk song yeah. to to an instrumental right. thing and then to a, a weird psychedelic moment and then a commercial break or something and then just yeah. making it all uh, I'll, I'll work, you know, and and check your head is, I guess that's probably the first uh, realized project in in that sense, that that we all yeah. we all did together. It was definitely a group a group effort. The boys obviously, yeah. you know, you know, uh, uh, led it and 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 drove it, and then me and Mark complemented it with our our musical, uh, you know, abilities and and vision also. We brought in a couple of our our, our local guys, percussionists, um, yeah. Ture Oliva and uh, Juanito Vasquez. They were percussionists mm-hmm. that you know uh, we brought to the studio to help round the sound and and, and tie it in with the percussion and, and things like that. Yeah. And it was really yeah. really a good a good uh, project, you know. It's very satisfying, and it also gave us confidence to repeat it on the next record, right? Because the formula was yeah. was 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 hot, and it was working um, yeah. on record and live. So we yeah. we went right into after tour and repeated it for uh, ill communication. Yeah, I don't think that gets said enough. Just how much an impact hip hop had on bringing genres together, and ill communication, and check your head, and Paul's boutique. De La Soul, you know, Cypress Hill, all those records were sampling and utilizing music from every genre, country, reggae, soul. And I just, that's what grabbed me about it. I heard it. I was like, it's got a Johnny Cash sample and Sly and Robbie and Sly and the Family Stone. It was like everything I like is in working together in one, in one thing. And it's fucking amazing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's hip hop. Yeah, yeah, that's we're we're blessed to to you know be at the right time at the right place. That was a golden era of of, of seeing that and, and being part of that uh, come together, and uh, still seeing the the influence of it to this day. You know, of, of yeah. people combining different styles and stuff like that in, in in that you know to that degree or pushing pushing the boundaries. You know, and then, you know yeah, people man. just doing everything now. Middle Eastern music and African music and all, anything with hip hop beats and you know Egyptian, yeah. all of that stuff comes together. Yeah. Uh, Love it. That's amazing. Well, I wanted to jump forward just a little bit and talk about after you and Mike and Mark had this studio um, that you built. You went on to build a studio for Matt Dyke and. Uh, I read that it was based around kind of an SP12 sampler and a Tascam 388, which I've got right here. I love love that machine. Is that is that true? First of all, that that is yeah, that is true. Yeah, that 
that was, yeah, I, I managed, <laughs> there's a whole story behind meeting Matt, but obviously that's oh, yeah. another story. But once we got, we hooked up and I was a sound guy. I, I, I uh, set up sound in the clubs for him and, yeah. you know, obviously shared some musical, you know, uh, you know, taste and a mutual, we had, you know, some mutual vibes and stuff and interest. And then yeah. he, he was really interested in wanting to make his own music, uh, and I yeah. expressed that I, I make my own music. I record my own music. And I know I man, I produced a 45. I know how to make a record. I actually produced another yeah. band called Alice I Wonder, an EP, uh, a 12 inch EP yeah. uh, after the Jungle Bug thing. So, you know, I, yeah. I furthered the, uh, the, the technique of and getting it, you know, done better and improving the quality. And he's like, really, you know how to make a record? And was, was impressed by that and asked me to come with him to go uh to the music store and he was he had five thousand dollars to invest in some equipment um i told him i had a four track but he was interested yeah. in an eight track that had just come out the task amp 388 yeah and he heard yeah. about this sp12 sampling drum machine that all the hip-hop hip-hop guys were using and uh yeah he knew that that was the, the tools and i go well, I, yeah you, this that's cool i'll go with you and check it out we went to Nadine's yeah. music down the street from his house. He lived right on <laughs> Santa Monica Boulevard. So I was literally yeah. walking down a block and uh, we checked it out. And I was like, this is fantastic. It's a recorder, eight tracks and a mixer all in one. Like you don't have to wire anything up. He goes, I go, yeah. I got the microphones. I got like a compressor. I got an EQ. I got a reverb and delay. I can bring all yeah. my stuff and hook this up, which I did yeah. in his living room and the SB12. Yeah. He knows, he said he heard you just record your records in there. He was a DJ. He had 50,000 albums, records in his, his apartment. It was just all apart, all right. records. So yeah, he he dug in and read the manual and figured out to hook up the DJ mixer, put the plug it straight in to sample in and hit record. Yeah. And you had two and a half seconds to record. And if it didn't fit, yeah. you'd speed it up and then you'd slow it down <laughs> to get the loop to fit in there yeah. and the BPM you want. And he he mastered it. He he every day. That's all he did. Like wow. you know, he would DJ on the weekends, and then all day spending on music. And then I'd come over, and when he had the ideas, then we record it, track it down. Once he got it all programmed, and there we fire out all the separate outputs into the eight tracks and fill it up. Yeah. And and record all the separate elements so that we could play with them, and mix and yeah. balance them. Uh, a partner, Mike Ross who was interested in starting a label. They, you know, they were like, Hey, we should make a your record. Like, you know, you're good at making music. You're like, Hey, I'm a, I, I, I know these rappers are, you know, he scouted out some rappers. They're like, they used to be like demo tapes that would get distributed uh, with the record, uh, the record collector groups, you know, the DJs, some of them would right. get a cassette of like a guy rapping, you know, in hopes that somebody yeah. would, would like listen to it and like, Hey, this guy sounds cool. And, and they would put yeah. their phone number on it. And they had a, a tape, a, a cassette, I think it said Tone Loke on it with a number. Yeah. They called it up one day. They like, Matt really liked it because the guy had a low voice and he sounded like Barry White. And he was right. like, you know, he loved Barry White. So he was like, yeah. we should call this guy. This guy sounds cool. And they called him up and said they were starting a label, you know. And, you know, they did. They did want it to. He was the first person yeah. and like, went and picked them up and brought them to the studio and just 
try to record a demo with them, you know, and yeah. uh, that started the whole thing. And this is all in a, in a, an apartment, uh, a living room and just a little setup. Right. And it, there's like a little closet, which was the vo- would made a vocal booth. I just, I just put carpeting around <laughs> it and I hung a, yeah. a U for, uh, M, uh, 421 Sennheiser mic, you know, oh, yeah. dynamic mic and just had a yeah. set of headphones and, just just said bare bones <laughs> but yeah. it was all based on on musical ideas and matt matt really was a genius on that and mike also helped and, and you know helped select and create and pick grooves that they that they really liked and yeah. you know then found found uh rappers or you know singers to 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 match the tracks you know and it's yeah, kind of yeah. like a, a a little factory we'd make a bunch of tracks and then try different people and um, right. young mc obviously was one and then deaf jeff right body and soul mellow man ace uh yeah i love him R- romeo master rhyme romeo master rhyme or something like that and a couple others did you work on that song tacapella by uh, master ace or master ace uh, mellow, mellow, man ace. mellow man ace yeah i actually worked on mellow man ace's record we did all the tracking there uh, I did the first single, and then my I actually brought my friend Brian Foxworthy yeah. from the the college there. I I got him to come in and sub for me because I I was tapped out working twelve sixteen hours sometimes eighteen hours a day, and then yeah you know uh, I couldn't work more. I got him in there, and then he he came in and helped between me and him. We did the rest of the of Mellow Man's record, which had be real and Sin Dog yeah. who were. Mellow right. Man's dancers at the time. Right. Right. right and Muggs. Right. Muggs did his first production. He came in with sample, you know, a sample of uh, Lucky Drubber or something with, with some Cool in a Gang or something. I, you know, I forgot what loop it's yeah. a, the song it was, but it was, you know, like the early days. And it was a really yeah. beautiful, beautiful, you know, beginning for all of us to be able to do this at the, at this it's studio, fair, which man. became Delicious Final. Amazing. Well, so when you guys were recording those all those songs, Young MC, uh, Tone Loke, I know some of it was samples, and then some of it was musicians too. I know Flea played on Bust a Move, and I know Arik Marshall a little bit. He said he played on some of that stuff too. That's correct. What was it like? And talk to about talk to us about the decisions of when to use musicians, when to use samples. How you guys kind of decided on all that? Well, I think that 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 really. Uh depended on the sample because if you had mm. a sample with just like a guitar riff you know yeah. matt would program a beat and there'd be a guitar riff so that would be hey there's space for a bass here and then you know um actually i think i we started working with the dust brothers uh, mm-hmm. they weren't the dust brothers at the time it was easy mike and john and yeah. king gizmo uh, john king oh. um yeah. mike simpson and, and john king they were they were college kids making music in Claremont and had a radio show and made me music and produ- produce stuff on the side. But like they had some technology where they would run Simpty on a four track and they could sync up their yeah. sampler and, and layer a bunch of stuff on top of each other that, that yeah. we didn't know about. And they brought this technology right. to us. When we hooked up, we had heard some of their demos of Orlando was one of our scouts that worked for the label and, he would, you know, servicing records to colleges and visiting people. And he said, hey, these guys got some 
hot beats and uh, you guys should yeah. check it out listen to it and we did and matt just his you know his mouth dropped when he heard that she was like how are they doing that there's like 10 samples going all in sync at the same time <laughs> right. they were, and they were really good good taste and the samples like yeah. super funky bizarre weird psychedelic shit you know like we're like this is some other level so we needed to team up with them and got them over to the studio and and i remember them them also being a bit more advanced and like bringing in hey we got our friend that that plays bass on us track and we want to record bass and then they would sample like part of the the bass line that they needed to fit the music that was missing on on the on the sample or or you know what i mean or a keyboard or something so right that started happening we saw how they were doing it and and it, we took this this technique of of laying empty and being able to sync up and go back and adding stuff in time right. as opposed to free freestyling it and uh right bringing in some musicians bring in a keyboard player matt was like man i really wish i had like this 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 stevie wonder thing but not you know the sample was in a different key we, we need something else have somebody replay right. something or a bass line is this one song and hey let's call flea he's around and Flea yeah. came in and you know made up this bass line and just killed it you know just feeling it yeah or bringing in a singer background singer and create a, a chorus or a hook you know a bust a move you know yeah. there's there's a lot of things that just happen you know like instantly yeah. and you just capture them and being able to identify that's good or that's cool yeah. or like let's keep that or like that's yeah. it right there and uh what the just, song just, needs yeah what does the song need serve the song exactly yeah so it was yeah. it was a you know experimental learning process that that we slowly figured out and you know improved i love it man i love it when something so creative uh ends up being you know uh something popular too something that wasn't you know with that in mind but it, it just ended up uh doing both things, being artistically awesome and uh, doing well too. Yeah. Well, let's jump forward just a little bit. I want to talk to, you know, obviously you had so much success with the Beastie Boys and continued to work with Mark on a, a lot of his solo records. And Mark, just like we were talking about earlier, he just amazes me. I don't know Mark, you know, just a little bit, but uh, he just seems like part inventor, scientist, and part musical savant. He's always come up, coming up with new stuff, and everything's like a 180 from what he did before. Like, he's so full of surprises and inspiring that way. And I just wonder how working with him has changed through the years and what his most compelling attributes as a human and as a musician are when you guys are working together. How has it changed over the years? Um not much he's still the same <laughs> okay. same witty yeah. wise guy yeah inventive yeah. genius you know difficult to read and, and understand at times <laughs> but always doing the right thing you know he's yeah. he's a he's a very positive up uh uplifting you know um force and and friend yeah. and stranger you know he at the same time he does it all <laughs> And uh, yeah. he'll he'll help anybody. I mean, I, I he's the kind of guy that be driving and he'll see somebody on the side of the road struggling, or they can't, you know, their car broke or something. He'll he'll pull over and be like, "Hey, can oh, I help yeah. you?" And just you know, get him going and like help him fix a flat tire or, or whatever, or, or give somebody something, you know. Or, 
he's 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 just really always has a lot of empathy and and and, and always thinking of others and that that'll never change you know he's he's a good a great you know man father you know uh everything you know he's he's he really you know keeps it keeps it balanced you know and keep keeps everyone guessing too you know always inventing and creating and um just being real you know he, he has no shame it's just to walk in any room or do anything he wants and he does it very you know very casually and uh very open you know just a fun fun person to hang around with you know and um always always something comes out of it you know what i mean um I like your comment on empathy because I feel like most of the musicians who are amazing creative musicians are people where empathy is a big part of their personality. Yeah. I feel like that's a key ingredient. Yeah. Yeah. He, he definitely has it and, and is uh, uh, just a beautiful person, you know, what uh, is my best friend. So that's still, still there and still strong. And, uh, you know, I love him and his brother. Mike, they're both yeah. really special people and I, I cherish and, you know, we're still doing it. Mike, That's Mike's still digging man. up stuff and finding stuff. At yeah, the swap I wanted to talk and, to you about that. That's yeah. amazing. I was going to ask you about because that Leo Nocentelli record just came out and I you know you guys all had something to do with that. And I just wanted to hear the story about your involvement and reaction to hearing all these unreleased tracks with the meters and Alan Toussaint and James Black and all that. Talk. Can you tell us the you know the short version of that story? Sure thing. Uh, Mike is a Mike Nishida is a is a you know a, a hunter. You know, like thrift shop and swap meet and you know storages and stuff like that. He's he's been doing this for for years now. He he wakes up early. He's a surfer, so he wakes up early, and catches waves, and then he's got a lot of time and he he hits the pawn shops or the thrift shops and the the swap meets. You know, yeah. and looking, uh, you know, it's it's exciting yeah. for him that find stuff and you run across all kinds of stuff in these storages. And this day he was at the swap meet, the rhodium swap meet, which was our local drive-in. It's it's, yeah. it's a full-time swap meet now, and and it had just that's kind of raining that day, which is rare in LA. And guy yeah. just pulled out a bunch of boxes with tapes, reel-to-reel tapes. Yeah, and Mike went over there. Yeah, you know, any audio and like music stuff. He's really, you know, that's his first interest. He go check out the records or drum sets or guitars and tapes. He's like, yeah. wow, this is kind of rare. I mean, not not often do you see this many of them. And he started looking at them and he started seeing the names and like, wait a minute, Lee Dorsey, wait a minute, Alan Toussaint, um, mm. Leo Nosatelli. So I said, the meters, uh, it's like, wait a minute, Dr. John. It's like, it started rattling his brain. He called me up. He like to send me a picture or call me up with some yeah. stuff. And he yeah. told me, and I said, get everything, buy everything you can. Yeah. So the guy <laughs> yes. had 16 boxes and he, uh -huh. the guy wanted like, whatever, a hundred bucks each, you know, to him, he's just, that's just junk. He was just, you know, yeah. Get it out of here. And uh -huh. Mike, you know, he knew the guy and he, and he negotiated with the guy. He goes, yeah, dude, I'll take them all. I only got like, what, three, 400 right now. I'm good for this. So I'm getting this back. 
I'll get you back today. He's like, yeah, of course. You know, I did like some other guy try to come up and try to, I'll give you double and all this shit. And, oh. and the guy, Mike was like, no, man, this is mine. I already got it. I already paid for it. And, and the yeah. seller obviously was like, no, that's, I just sold it to him already. You can't do, you know, I can't, not going to do that. Yeah. That's, that's, that's not cool. So, yeah. but the guy got almost physical with Mike and then Mike was like, dude, there's no way <laughs> this is mine. And I'm, you know, yeah. stood his ground, got the tapes, took them home. I went to go look at him. I was just like, saw them laid out all the boxes. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is insane. I don't know what it is. It was somebody's <laughs> storage locker that yeah. they didn't pay in the Valley or something like that. And it just Mm. got cleared out and ended up in some guys, you know, swap meet, you know, rummage. And crazy, uh, crazy. it was part, it must've been like a, I don't know, a publisher or somebody who had, who had publishing and owned stuff. They had a bunch of tapes and part of the collection happened to be yeah. Alan Toussaint stuff, which came from his okay. collection that he apparently sold in the nineties. Uh -huh. So, the tapes were like old tapes. A lot of the stuff was already released, like Lee Dorsey stuff. Okay. There was bits and pieces, and there's there's you know multi tracks. Some of the stuff is like three track stuff. Some stuff on four track. Uh, yeah. A lot of it was just quarter inch and some half inch, but mainly quarter inch mono. And they were, I think, mm -hmm. part of his private listening thing. Like the, back home, oh. back then, you would take you would take a a, a mono tape reel-to-reel -reel tape home to listen to because you didn't have cassettes unless you cut out right. an acid tape to listen to it you know so right, right, right. people you know the producers would have like a little reel-to-reel -reel and listen to it at three and three quarters or seven and a half ips on a slow speed mono so some of them were lower quality but that was this incredible amount of stuff and then i noticed all the meter stuff and then i saw the alan leon Sotelli, and i'm like wow there's a whole bunch of stuff here and i put on the first tape and listened to it and i was like oh my god this song is I don't know this song. amazing. I, you know, I almost was crying. <laughs> yeah. I was like, people got to hear this. They're like, we got to hear this. And yeah. um, I told Mike, I go, I'm going to call my guy Matt Sullivan at Light in the Attic. And I, yeah. and I put together like 10 songs or whatever. And I put together a little sequence. I did a little mastering, sent it to him. And he heard it yeah. over a weekend. Oh, and yeah. he's like, dude, <laughs> I, I got it. I'm going to put this out. You know, and then, then he was like, yeah he had to find leo and you know we dug him up and called yeah. him and then told him and then he was like what you guys found the tape and then he came out and he was just you know he was amazed he hadn't had a copy in 25 or 30 years he had a cassette that he lost he'd never had had the tapes you know in his hands and, and now he's touring it right so awesome and now he's he's, he's playing around and did he, he you know he did a couple of shows yeah and yeah. it's it's acoustic it's, so it's, it's a different side of him and and we were just how how amazing that it fell in mike's hand and in my hands and we obviously love the meters and stuff and to see it come yeah. full circle go back to him in new orleans and you know the people are all yeah everybody who's who heard it really likes it and feels you know it's a natural beautiful project that was sitting there for 35 40 years or whatever so incredible man so incredible yeah. Much love to Leo and big up to Matt Sullivan. I love that dude. He's I, I know Matt a little bit too. He's a big cool, time. Cool, cool yeah, super guy, super uh, guy. 
Well, I know we don't have too much time here left, but um, I wanted to talk just about you and what you're working on lately. You've worked on so much diverse stuff from Los Lobos and John Lee Hooker to Beck and G Love, Jack Johnson, blah, blah, blah. So many amazing things. And you've done so much work with Brazilian artists. Um, and I just wonder, I, the times I've seen you DJ, you're either DJing great Brazilian records or great uh, Jamaican records. And you've done a lot of Brazilian, produced a lot of Brazilian artists. I'm wondering, are there some Jamaican artists that you're going to be working with at some point? I'd love to hear a Mario C. Uh, produced uh, reggae record. Oh, man. Um, I, I thank you for the compliment. I, I, I definitely enjoy playing records and love, yeah. you know, Brazilian and, and uh, reggae, especially. Reggae was probably the first music I got really passionate about and deep. I even I went to Jamaica in in 83 1983 by myself right. to Sunsplash and to just absorb yeah. it firsthand. I was really really into the the scene and there was a reggae show uh, the reggae beat on Sunday that promoted yeah. reggae and and I used to tape the shows on reel to reel it was 4 yeah. hours cuz I couldn't find those nice. records and things so yeah at the time and it was a, a beautiful passion uh never imagined one day that uh, I would get to a chance to to record and and uh, do something in Jamaica, and it, and then the day came. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was blessed to uh, to go and uh, do a project. Um, actually, with uh, was for Michael Franti uh, to record oh, yeah. in Jamaica for him, and he was working with Sly yeah. and Robbie. And, oh, okay. Uh, got to meet Sly and Robbie and uh, yeah. work with them and, and met Chris Blackwell also, which was, oh, yeah. that's, that, that, that was huge. He, he is yeah. actually the producer of the project who spearheaded it. And then, um, you know, they, they wanted me to produce it and, you know, work with Michael and, and uh, we got to yeah. go there for like two weeks and hang out in Jamaica. And, oh, and I, it was just a lot of schooling, just watching these guys, yeah. uh, you know, do their thing yeah. because you know they they yeah. do their thing you know uh and it, it it was great and i got to connect with sly and robbie which are really super sweet guys and they were really yeah. very kind and gracious with us and and um got to know them personally and exchange contacts and you know we talked about yeah. hey if you ever need something you know his call you know yeah. and uh Wicked. I, I I was just just honored by that and thrilled and you know we did the record and you know the project came out uh, didn't come out quite the way the way I I had, I had hoped it would have come out but Michael he went and kind of reworked the stuff and oh. kind of chopped it up and did 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 a, a different approach on it but yeah. I got to meet Sly and Robbie and hang out with them and that that was a good thing yeah. and a couple years later I was in Brazil working on a project and suggested Sly and Robbie to Vanessa da Mata, a Brazilian artist, yeah. and her manager loved the idea. And then, you know, oh, yeah. she said, Yes, let's do this. So oh, we yeah. went, we took six songs to, to, to Jamaica to do with Sly and Robbie. Yeah. And I oh. called Sly, and he was like, Yeah, man, come, just come <laughs> to Jamaica. I go, Do you want me to send you the songs ahead of time? I go, No, man, just come down, just, just, just show up. <laughs> you know bring yeah. vanessa you know like so i show up with my friend cassine 
a producer, yeah. and Vanessa, and a, a photographer guy from the label who videoed the stuff. And uh, we went to Jamaica oh. and got to record them properly in Jamaica, Ooh, you know, with the studio. Wow. Uh, and just let it let it happen, you know. I mean, I, you can't, I can't tell these guys what to do. They're, it's like every time you try to say something, it's it's it doesn't work out. So you just gotta let them do yeah. it. And it, it was amazing, you know. Vanessa liked the first song she heard. She's just crying. She couldn't believe it. And, oh, and uh, that's beautiful. It ended up being like the most played song in Brazil in two thousand and eight. Uh, this wow. beautiful track, and you know, I was blessed. Then Robbie and Sly were super cool, and they come back again. You know, anytime, every time they came into the town, I'd call them and see them at their gigs. They were playing Black Uhuru or Solo, backing up somebody, yeah. and yep. they were, you know, so sweet. Unfortunately, we lost yeah. Robbie last year, but I still yeah. talk to Sly, and he's still around and hanging in there. Yeah. And they're, yeah, amazing. So I love that the Jamaican connection. Well, Mario, it's a, it's one problem of having a, a discography that's extensive, extensive, is that I missed two records that you worked on. So I'm glad to know about those two. Yeah. <laughs> I'll check them out, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, they're good, good stuff. There's so many others, all the Brazilian artists, too, that are incredible that I work with. I just, just sell Georges, Marcelo D2, and Planet Hemp. So actually, you asked what I'm working on right now. We just finished a new Planet Hemp record. After 22 yeah. years, I had done their yeah. second and third record, and this is their fourth record, and it's okay. it's 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 really 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 good. It's coming back hard. Yeah. They're political, they're 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 powerful. Nice. They have a message, and um, yeah. the the singer Marcelo, lead singer, is we're, we're good, super tight family and godfather to each other's kids. And um, oh, I do all his solo records, Marcelo D two. We got about eight or nine of them together. I'm losing count. Yeah. Um, and they're fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Brazilian hip hop and samba yeah. hip hop. So there's another wow, new one that's yeah. about to come out also, but they're all fantastic. They're really good. If you, if anyone wants to listen to the Brazilian hip hop, Marcelo D2 is a, yeah. a great place. And Wicked. I got a new one of his coming out, the Planet Hemp. There's a Cell George with orchestration by Miguel Atwood Ferguson, which oh, yeah. is an, a beautiful, mystic record that 2023 next year should be coming out on uh, day nice. daydreamer and uh, more records which is our little label that we got going and um miguel is the man he's amazing. miguel is yeah he's beautiful this is one of his premier uh jobs he did he did the whole record and he's a, a big part oh, of, nice. of well, how the record uh is responsible for it sounding or for being what it is and uh it's it's really beautiful and yeah. I'm, i can't wait to share that with everyone yeah man oh that's so cool we will all be on the lookout right uh, well thanks so much for taking the time today mario it was a honor for me man i've been loving everything you've done and uh you're an inspiration to me and i know you will be to all of our listeners so thanks once again mario caldado jr for thank coming you. on the conduit thank you dan appreciate it and uh, yeah, much respect for for having me and all, all your wonderful guests that you have on your show too i've checked a few of them out and they're they're all a really in-depth and good insight on on everybody's background and very nice to, to hear oh thank you man thank you thank you all right brother well i'll catch up with you soon and uh hear some more of your amazing yeah. record collection the next time i run into you i'm sure indeed see you soon <laughs> All right, Take brother. Care, Take care. Bye. Peace out.
All right. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Conduit. The Conduit is brought to you by Crew S Studio and DanUbeProductions.com. Many thanks to the folks at Squadcast, Polymash, Captivate, We Edit Podcasts, Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Sure, and Avid. Extra special thanks to my brothers from Other Mothers, Scott Power, Bill Coulter, and Alex Dezer. And last but not least, go check out Soul Picnic, my hand-picked music playlists on notrealart.com. Until next time, this is Dan Ubik, signing off.